the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service podcast. My name is Alec Perry and this is Thrill of the Hill. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I sit down with the Chief Executive of Scotland The Big Picture, Peter Cairns, and we discuss the topic of rewilding and its potential role in helping Scotland alleviate some of its biodiversity crisis. Hello, Peter. How's it going? Yeah, good. Very, very good. Thank you very much. Good, good. Um, thanks, Peter, for, for joining us this morning. We, we really appreciate your time to, to sit down and, and have a chat with us. Peter, can you just introduce Big Picture Scotland, um, give a bit of background of yourself and the kind of projects that you've been involved in? Yeah, um, well, I suppose starting point is just to correct the name. So it's it's Scotland, the big picture is the name of the charity. Um, I'm, I'm, I suppose, have the rather pretentious title of executive director, which really just means I'm in charge of trying to keep all the plates spinning um, we're a relatively young charity. We've been around as a, as a social enterprise actually since 2008. Our background, our core background really is environmental journalism. Um, historically, most of our team have worked in uh, environmental communications, photography, filmmaking, writing, design, that sort of thing. And we really started um, with nothing more than an objective to mainstream rewilding, to improve understanding of what it was and, and just as importantly, what it, what it isn't. Um, but I think, you know, the, the journey of rewilding in Scotland has evolved and matured significantly over the last three, four, five years. And, and, and bit by bit, we've gradually been kind of sucked into that vortex. Um, and a couple of years ago, we, we, we realised we'd been almost unwittingly, inadvertently afforded a platform. So we decided to sort of formalise our, our objectives. And we now work as a charity um, across a wide range of rewilding initiatives everything from advocacy, which is a big part of our work, through to um, physical and practical rewilding through through our Northwoods rewilding network. So yeah, we've, we've, we've kind of got our fingers in, in I, I suppose, most of the rewilding pies. Brilliant, brilliant, that's great. And uh, Peter, the idea behind the podcast series is that we discuss topics that are affecting sectors that are involved in the farmed upland environment. Um, I do a fair bit of conservation work with the SAC Consulting. I am the coordinator for the Agri-Environments Climate Scheme. Um, and uh, it's always struck me that when it comes to the issues of rewilding, there's a, a kind of vast uh, amount of, of, of different projects that can be lumped into to rewilding. And it's sometimes not clear for some of our clients um, to, to understand what, what we really mean by rewilding. Can you just explain what rewilding means to you? <laughs> yeah, that's a, a very valid question. I think I think it's absolutely fair to say it's, it's come to mean different things to different people. Um, I mean, for me personally, I don't get hung up too much about the terminology. I don't care whether you call it rewilding, nature recovery, ecological restoration, habitat improvement, call it what you will. Um, for me personally, it, it's really anything that that counteracts more dewilding, anything that joins up and enriches habitats rather than further fragment and degrade them, anything that results in more life rather than less life. And, and by life, I don't just mean wildlife, I mean human life. 
Um, you know, we've got this popular misconception that um, that, that rewilding automatically means depeopling. Um, and, and I'm actually not sure where that narrative has come from, because I've never met anybody that I, I work alongside that is, you know, anti-people, so to speak, or anti-repopulation, certainly of, of parts of, of the highlands. Um, so I, I, that's at a personal level. Scotland, the big picture, has done quite a lot of work on on trying to define rewilding. And there is no one answer. Um, and we recognise that definitions do vary. But for us, rewilding is an evolving process of nature recovery that leads to restored ecosystem health function and completeness. So that's the formal definition that we would put forward. But we fully accept that across different scales and different settings, um, rewilding can look very differently, but still make a valuable contribution. So, yeah, we, we don't get too hung up about the terminolo terminology. And as far as you're concerned, Peter, um, rewilding and reintroduction, what, what's the distinction there? You, you mean the reintroduction of species? Yes. Yeah, yeah well, well, again, I think, um, I mean, rewilding is, is, is a much more holistic approach to what traditional conservation traditional conservation and by that I'm, I'm talking about conservation practice over the last i don't know 30 40 50 years it, it's been a very species specific or, or habitat specific approach in other words we identify an animal or a bird or whatever it happens to be that's 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 threatened or is or is declining and we put a huge amount of resources into that into saving that species almost at the expense of everything else and then when the funding runs out for that particular project we go on to another species and this kind of piecemeal ad hoc approach, I would argue, has got us into this situation where we have, you know, a nature depleted country, a nature depleted continent, a nature depleted world. So rewilding takes a much more holistic view of, of, of ecosystems and everything that is contained within that ecosystem. So we would argue that in order for a sister living system to function effectively, there has to be a complete assemblage of species in that system. It's a bit like a car engine. If you start to take away individual components, then eventually the engine starts to falter and ultimately it will fail. So reintroduction of missing species, missing native species, has a role in that context. But again, I think rewilding, the narrative around rewilding has come to be associated almost exclusively in some people's minds with the return of large carnivores, and and more significantly, the depopulation. So almost it's it's wolves in and farmers out. That that's the kind of the lazy narrative that has that has that has evolved. Um, but for us, certainly, I can't speak for others, but for us, it's never been about that. The return of missing species is one facet of rewilding, but it's only one facet. And and you know, the, there's so much work that we can do that everyone agrees on. We could waste an enormous amount of time and energy arguing about whether there is a a place for, for lynx or wolves in, in Scotland. But actually, given the backdrop of, of climate breakdown and global nature loss, there's a huge amount of stuff that we can do that we all agree on, that we all recognise as a fundamental progressive step towards nature recovery. So, yeah, I, I would say that, that species reintroduction is a part of rewilding, but it is only one part and it's a relatively small part. I think... Obviously, we're on the Farm Advisory Service podcast right now. Um, there will be listeners who are overjoyed by your uh, your reaction to, to that. I think a lot of farmers in Scotland will have a kind of visceral 
reaction to the to the potential for reintroduction of large carnivore species um, and maybe important just to um, express that that's not necessarily the the only avenue that we want to be looking at when we're talking about rewilding for us you know it, it, it makes no sense trying to reconcile what some might perceive as intractable differences um, you know that the, they are conversations that need to be had and, and I think you know we need to we need to put our sort of big boy pants on and have them in a progressive, constructive and, and respectful environment. But right here, right now, as I say, we could waste a lot of time and energy arguing about those differences. It, it makes absolute sense to find common ground and build out from that. Because, you know, let, let's be honest, there's there's a, a significant element of suspicion, mistrust, call, call it what you will, between some of these sort of these sectors, call it conservation, call it agriculture, call it hunting, fishing, whatever. Um, I, I actually don't recognize those silos because the, the, there's individuals in, in all of those sectors that have a, a massive, wide-ranging perspective on, on rewilding. But, but it, yeah, it, it makes no sense to, to, to dwell on that. And I think what we need to do is find shared visions to shared solutions to the challenges that we all, not, not only as as, as farmers or rewilders or conservationists or whatever, um, you know the, these are these are existential crises that we face in the term of in in, in the form of globe, uh, climate breakdown and global nature loss. There are things that we can identify that we can start to to, to build on on in common ground, build up trust, build up confidence, um, and let's see where that journey takes us. Um, you know, it, it's a process. This is it's it's not something that that people like me change overnight not that we would try to um i think this is a social process in the same vein as i don't know racism for example you know that's been an evolving social change over 30 40 years and and rewilding is no different and i think significantly what rewilding does which, which i think i personally believe is at the root of some of its uh some of the resistance to it it, it represents change there's no getting away from that. This is this is a new approach to land management in Scotland, um, and change is generally not particularly welcome by by people generally, and and especially in in rural settings, and especially if that change is perceived to be being done to people rather than with people or for people. So we're we're very very conscious of the. Of the of, of some of the really deep seated and very real concerns that that not only farmers but land managers across the piece have about that change and, and rewilding presents a perceived threat in in that vein. I think Peter, you've just kind of answered my my next question, but I'll, I'll give it to you anyway. Can, can you explain, Peter, why rewilding is is so important for Scotland and and where you see it tying in with Scotland's climate and biodiversity crises? Um, obviously, we are recording this today in the backdrop of, of COP26, which is which is just about to, to, to occur. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, what, where you see rewilding fitting into the overall strategy? Yeah, well, we'll just, let's just put the word itself aside for a moment. Um, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. You know, we, we've got a Scotland was one of the first countries to declare a climate emergency. The Scottish government have publicly acknowledged that, that climate breakdown and global nature loss 
are inextricably linked. We can't fix one without the other. So these are existential crises that we all face, irrespective of our background and our, and our profession. And I think, you know, rewilding is, is just one tool that allows us to address those existential crises. And, and as I say, I, I don't mind what you call it, but we do, as a society, have to embark on this journey of nature recovery. Um, and that doesn't mean to say we can disregard our need for food. Of course, we need to food, feed ourselves, and we absolutely should be feeding ourselves on, on much more locally sourced or regionally sourced food. There's no doubt about that. And, and so some of these, some of these challenges are, are challenges. There's no doubt about that. But I think fundamentally, we have to embark on this journey of restoring ecosystem health and rewilding or nature recovery or habitat restoration, call it what you will, is, is a significant tool. And I would argue a cost effective tool to help address those, those crises. Peter, earlier on when we talked about the reintroduction of species, you mentioned the term native. Um, how should we um, go about deciding what is a native species, what's natural in the landscape in terms of rewilding when it comes to Scotland? Yeah, <laughs> again, that's that's a, a, a tricky question to answer. I, I mean, I think the official line is, is any any species that naturally existed in Scotland post the last ice age. So, you know, we could go back, let, let's say, for the sake of argument, 10,000 years and and draw a line and say, look, when when Scotland emerged from the last climatic upheaval, um, this was the assemblage of species that naturally existed here. Um, so I think that's as good a baseline as anywhere. But but the question, if I may say so, Alex, implies that rewilding is about returning to some notional date in the past and trying to replicate what existed at, at that time. That, that for me, rewilding, despite the re-bit in the word, is not about going back. It's very much about looking forward. Um, so in terms of the appropriateness, as it were, of individual species. I think we have to look at that in the context of the future rather than, than the past. This is not about creating some sort of, you know, some sort of Disneyland theme park um, that, that, that reflects a particular time in the past. It's not about that at all. It's about climate and, and, and environmental resilience moving forward. That's great. Yep. In terms of, you mentioned when we, when we started that, uh, rewilding has really taken on um, some political clout behind it and that there's a lot of enthusiasm for it now. Can you just discuss how that's developed over the years and what species or, or habitat in your mind is the next big hurdle for Scotland to get over? Yeah, the political climate is interesting. Um, I think, you know, of course, that, that climate itself is is very fluid at the moment. We've just had the the sort of marriage, so to speak, of, of SNP and, and the Greens. It'll be interesting to see how, how that develops. Um, I mean, Scottish government have been very nervous about the word rewilding for all of the reasons that you're alluding to this morning, the connotations of depeopling, rural depopulation, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think these are headlines that, that are actually perpetuated by the popular media rather than, than in inverted commas, rewilders themselves. But there is a nervousness at, at a political level around the word um, having said that, as I said at the beginning, our job initially was to try and mainstream rewilding to, and to reframe it almost from being a perceived threat into a, an actual opportunity. And I think that that process is underway. 
Um, you know, prior to the May elections, we had three of the main political parties mentioning rewilding in their manifestos. Um, and so it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that political narrative develops um, in the coming months and years. Ironically, I would just add in that, you know, the Scottish government, although they might not call it rewilding, in many instances have been practicing rewilding for many years in places like Craigmeggie, in places like Cairngorms Connect. You know, they're talking about landscape scale habitat restoration. So although they might not term it rewilding, actually a lot of the principles behind rewilding are already being practiced by, by Scottish government. In terms of the, the second bit of the question, species, um, yeah, you don't need me to tell you we've, we've got a, an ongoing situation, shall we call it, with, with beavers at the moment. Again, you know, nothing that has happened with beavers in terms of the reaction, um, certainly in parts of Tayside, would surprise me. I did a lot of work 15 years ago over in the States when wolves were reintroduced and actually you know, talking to ranchers, talking to tourism operators, politicians, hunters, scientists, everybody that was involved in that very contentious change, and that's what it was, um, had an opinion and a perspective. And, and ironically, I think, you know, you could pick up that, that, that tumble dryer, that tumultuous mix of people's personal beliefs and values. You could change the backdrop and you could change the characters and, and, and bring it across the Atlantic and plonk it down in Scotland. And the narrative around beavers is not so different. You know, this is this is 10% ecology and 90% psychology. It's all about people and their belief systems and values. And, and a lot of what I see, the conversations going on around beavers in, in, uh, in, in the likes of Tayside, you know, you could reflect to early conversations around wolves in, in Montana and Wyoming. So we're dealing with people, and people, generally speaking, the world over, are the same. They have similar priorities, similar motivations in life, similar belief systems, or at least similar roots to their belief systems. Um, so I think it'll be really, really interesting how the beaver situation evolves in the next, you know, coming months, coming years. There's a judicial review, you may know, um, that is about to be announced or, or to be to be judged upon. Um, about how we manage beavers, that that will be interesting. But I think you know beavers are probably quite a symbolic species as much as anything else, because if we can learn to live with beavers and all of their benefits and some of their 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 challenges that they inevitably bring with them, then we may gain the confidence to look at other species. And and I would say that probably the one in the in the spotlight at the moment is is links. I think that's probably the next conversation that's going to take place. So, what is the the state of play in terms of conversations around links? I mean, wh what kind of timescale are we looking at for for the reintroduction of links, or or do you think we'll, we'll get to that point? I don't know whether we'll get to that point. So, so right here, right now, we are involved in a in a fourteen month long. Um, social feasibility study. This is really a first step to establish the answer to the question, does Scotland want links? It, it, you know, that's, that's the first step. Because unless there is, you're never going to get universal acceptance, but unless there is um, majority support for the return of links, then it, it's a non-starter. If people don't want these animals back, then it doesn't matter how much ecological justification there is, it doesn't matter how much legislative obligation there is. 
um, you know, when it comes down to people's values, that that's that's really what will dictate whether there is a next step to Link's reintroduction. So I, I can't answer the timescale thing. I can't. I, I I still think it's very much a a, a whether rather than a when or an if rather than a when. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion at all. But there is mounting pressure, if that's the right word, um, on the government to consider species reintroductions on the basis that, as I said at the beginning, you know, we can't have an ecological engine functioning properly or efficiently without some of its key components in place. So, yeah, I, I think I think it'll be, again, it'll be an interesting conversation. I don't know how that conversation will will pan out. What I do hope is that it pans out in a in a respectful uh, and measured and evidence based manner. I hope that we can all accept that we might not share the same opinions. We might not share the same objectives, but there is a significant proportion of society that wants to see more life in 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 Scotland, more wildlife, more nature, a more nature rich future for Scotland. And links are only one part of that, but they are a part of that. And I think you know we all have to acknowledge that um, that that we have different perspectives, and we need to be able to listen to what people's concerns are and where possible overcome those concerns. And it may well be that at the end of this study, there are just so many barriers, some of them insurmountable, that it's a non-starter, in which case people like me and, and others just have to walk away, hold our hands up and say, okay, the country has voted, the, the voices of the people have been heard, if you like, um, and, it's, and it's a non-starter. Equally, it may be that we, we come up with a set of barriers but there is a there is a mechanism by which we can overcome those barriers. But I'm not going to preempt the, the the outcome of that study. The the results will be published in February, and we'll be in a much better position to accurately gauge, uh, or more accurately gauge at least, the public the public appetite for the return of links. So you you kind of laid out uh, my next question there, but uh, obviously rewilding is not without its uh, its opposition and its critics. Um, I kind of alluded to it um, at the beginning of the podcast. Certainly, there are farmer groups within Scotland that have expressed serious concern over the issues of, of rewilding and particu uh, particularly the, the reintroduction of these large predators. Using um, links as a, as a kind of case study, I wonder if you could address some of those concerns. You, you mentioned that there is uh, or there are ecological benefits to, to links in Scotland. I mean, how do we how do we convey that side of the argument to, to farmers effectively? Yeah, I, I think it's really difficult because, um, you know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of farmers and, and it's quite clear and I, I completely understand this, that, that no amount of ecological evidence or benefit actually, you know, resonates with, with a lot of farmers because they're I, I believe this. I believe that in the same way that ranchers in America don't necessarily hate wolves, they hate what wolves stand for. And I think it's the same with, with lynx. I don't think it's about lynx or, or for that matter, beavers. I think it's about, and I don't actually even think it's about economics. Some of it, economics has a, has a role to play, of course. But, you know, the farmers I speak to talk about um, a, a really deep-seated connection with the land and the way the land looks, the way the land feels, the way the land smells. This is a really deep, primal connection, a sense of identity, a sense of belonging. Um, and, and no amount, and, and when you take all of those really complex, uh, 
human traits, human characteristics, human belief systems into account. You know, Lynx just happens to be the pawn in that in that in that arena at the moment. But these are really these are really deep and, and complex um, resistances to change that that people that people are resistant to. I, I think change is a key word in this. But the other key word, I believe, is is control. And if you think about it, we have grown to have control over every square inch of this country. Um, and farmers have a big role in that. Landowners have a big role in that. Land managers. So rewilding, I think, is is it represents change. Some people perceive it as change being foisted upon a, an unwilling rural community or rural sector. But I also think rewilding represents a wrestling of control away from land managers. And that's something that makes people really, really uneasy. And, and you know, rewilders are advocating that control, in inverted commas, is returned, in part at least, to nature. So th these are really fundamental changes in, the, in our relationship with nature and our relationship with the land. And I think many farmers see this as, a, as an affront on their cultural heritage, or almost a dilution of their sense of identity. And, and again, I think it shouldn't be underestimated, this idea that, that it's being done to them by outsiders with, with no skin in the game, so to speak. Um, and I get that. I completely get that. The flip side is that, you know, we are in a, in a nature emergency. Economics around farming, certainly upland farming, is changing, you know, almost on a daily basis. That, that's nothing to do with rewilding. That's just simply market forces. Consumer trends, consumer per perceptions are changing. So it, it may well be that, that, you know, factors out with rewilding come to dictate what farming will look like in two, three, five, ten years' time. Um, so I, I would argue, look, you know, we shouldn't be trying to necessarily force a square peg into a round hole, but it may be that as other factors transpire, that there's an opportunity, not only for nature, but also for people in a change of land management and a change of approach to land management. So, yeah, I, I don't think we should be tempted into this, this very basic, raw, primal, binary choice between nature and people. That's kind of how it's been framed. But actually, are there opportunities to allow both to flourish? Because pitching one against the other is going to serve neither, in, in my view. I think, Peter, you've just touched on something that's that's really interesting, and, and maybe this is just my perspective and maybe it's wrong, but you identified the the passion within the agricultural sector to maintain the land um, in, in good, good condition and in produ uh, productive condition. Is that a passion that we should try and export to the, to the general public? Is that a, a passion that's lacking in the general public or... or, or is that passion the 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 barrier to, to change? Yeah, I, I, again, it, it's it's a it's a tricky question. I, I think you know we would all recognise that that in modern society, for for various reasons, we've we've lost that that sort of innate connection with nature. You know, you very often hear that kids don't know where their food comes from, um, and and I think farming. Um, Farming, farming, and farmers have an absolute role to play in that in that reconnection, that that sort of re-education, if if you want to put it that way. So, yeah, the, that detachment from nature um, 
serves I would argue serves society not not particularly well and that there's now apart from anything else there's a growing body of compelling evidence that 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 links that detachment from nature for up to a whole host of, of both physical and mental conditions um, especially among young people so you know this is a this is a concern at a societal level this is not peculiar to agriculture or to rewilding this is a societal condition um, so we, we do have to take steps to address that one of the things that that myself and and colleagues are working on is is trying to introduce ecological education um, into the curriculum um, because there is ecological blindness. Most young people don't know about you know natural processes, the processes of predator prey dynamics, scavenging, birth, death, decay, regeneration. These are the processes that drive every healthy living system on Earth. Um, and, and we have a bizarre situation where we're, you know, in, in, num in numerical terms, we are one of the most conservation-minded countries in the world. You look at the membership of some of the big conservation organizations, and they can't be matched anywhere. And yet, somehow, despite that, we've become one of the most nature-depleted countries in the world. So there's, there's some glue in the middle that is, that is definitely missing. Uh, and I think we all have a role to, to play in, in trying to... Uh, to try and rejoin or re recreate, if you like, our, our innate connection with the natural world. Scotland, I think it would be fair to say, has a, a strong sense of its own history and, and heritage. Um, could that be an avenue to, to have the rewilding discussion? Um, I, I know you kind of touched on this when we talked about beavers, but uh, is is that an, an avenue for, for, uh, for rewilding? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our background is, is is storytelling. Effectively, that that's the background that we came from, um, and we've always had this this discomfort with the with the approach by traditional conservationists. I hate all these tribal labels, but I'm I'm just trying to trying to sort of uh, com communicate the message. Really, um, you know, I think historically, what what conservationists have done to to move their cause forward is gone along to a farmer or whoever, doesn't really matter who it is, they, they tend to prise their jaws open and then they get this, this shovel load of science and, and ram it down people's throats. And eventually they're convinced that when people have been properly informed, as it were, they will change their minds. So in other words, they target the head. They target the logic and rational part of our brain to make informed decisions. Our experience, and, and again, I'll go back to wolves and, and, and more recently beavers, is that you know we're targeting the wrong organ? Most people's most people's choices, most people's perceptions, come from the heart. Come from their fundamental, dare I say, emotional connection with nature. So storytelling that that resonates with people's emotions as much as anything else is a really valuable tool in um, in 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 informing, influencing, and, and and inspiring people to think differently, to feel differently. Um, and if you take the Gallic culture, for example, that, you know, I'm, I do quite a bit of work with, with another organization called Trees for Life. They're building the world's first rewilding center in Glen Morriston. Um, and, you know, there's a big, big emphasis on the on the lessons, the stories that, that can help shape the future that come from the past in, in terms of the Gallic language. So absolutely, I think history and, and history, more recent history, of course, plays a big, big role in in rewilding and 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 the resistance to it. And, and I've heard it called 
you know, neo-colonialism, the clearances all over again. Personally, I think that three, five years ago, there was some merit in those fears. There was some merit in that narrative. I would have to say that I think we've moved to a point where that now, if you're if you're equating rewilding with with um, with the clearances, that I, I just think that's lazy thinking these days. I think we're at a stage in the rewilding conversation where it's evolved enough and it's mature enough for that not to be a valid conversation now. I recognise the concerns about depeopling, but I think you know uh, using rewilding as a, as a sort of a veiled threat to mass depopulation across the highlands. I've never heard anybody recommend that. And I think it's just the product of the popular media who, of course, love sensationalism and conflict. So I I absolutely don't recognise that argument anymore. You've just mentioned um, depeopling, Peter. Uh, Presumably rewilding is not synonymous with no management. Presumably you you want to see people actively involved in the, the, the upland environment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, apart from anything else, we, you know, whether we like it or not, we do have an impoverished or, or, or denuded from a nature, from an ecological point of view, um, and arguably from a from a people point of view, landscape across m- 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 much of the uplands. So there is a big, big job in. I mean, whether you ultimately believe that rewilding is about letting go, and I think in some areas there is an absolute case for for that. But we're not at the stage, effectively, where we where we've created. We're at a point where we can let go. I think there's a huge amount of so-called intervention that has to take place. Whether that's peatland restoration, whether it's woodland creation, whether it's uh, species reintroductions, whether it's you know recreating wildflower meadows, whatever it is on the nature recovery journey, people have a significant role to play in that. So there's a huge opportunity actually in terms of jobs, in terms of high quality jobs in the rewilding process itself, irrespective of what it ultimately leads to, you know, I don't know, 50, 100 years from now. So yeah, again, I think, you know, we, we would definitely argue that rewilding is a solution to nature, to climate, but crucially also to people. I wonder, um, just going back to to farming, um, just very quickly, Peter, um, how do you see um, the need to to balance rewilding and the potential loss of of productive farmland? Where where does that sit in your mind? Yeah, again, I think it's easy to start having battles over, you know, woodland taking over, for example, you know, lowland, fertile, arable land. Um, that that to me doesn't make sense. I think we have to start where there is already marginalisation, where there is already questions over economic viability or so or sustainability. And and you know, with the best will in the world, that that points you towards significant areas of the uplands. Um, so to me, before we start arguing about you know whether a wheat field in Fife is going to be turned into a into a wetland, for example, um, we need to be to looking at, at areas that are that have got low hanging fruit, so to speak. That you'll you'll be aware at the moment, for example, that there's a huge amount of work and and investment in in peatland restoration. Yes. this is really a you know it's often termed a Cinderella habitat. Nobody really cares about it. It's it's gone under the radar. But all of a sudden, again, against the backdrop of climate breakdown peatlands are, are, are valued. They're valued as a, as a resource, a carbon store. 
So, you know, a huge amount of work being put in there, huge amount of work being put into um, native woodland restoration, again, in the uplands, in, in marginalized areas. Um, and, and, and again, I can only speak, you know, in the case of, of, of locally in the Cairngorms, a lot of people involved in, in, in this work. So there are jobs, high quality jobs, high paying jobs that are that are coming out of this restoration process. So I, absolutely, I don't see I don't see nature recovery as 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 being exclusive and 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 you know not including people. I think absolutely people have a role in it and have a have an opportunity to benefit from it. Do you think, Peter, that in the pursuit of climate wins, um, we could be jeopardising some of Scotland's habitats? Would would that be a fair comment? Um, such as I'm, I'm thinking that obviously there's been a lot of tree planting um, achieved across Scotland and, and that's been great from a, a carbon capture perspective but when you look at things like um, wetlands and, and peatlands um, areas of the upland that uh, are valuable habitat reserves um, that, uh, that, that we don't look too hastily at, at tree planting everywhere yeah I mean I, I, I think it's an interesting situation with trees I, I understand where the motivation has come from um and i understand that trees are a very tangible and and, and quick fix if, if you like um as i say i'm involved with trees for life and the appetite for people to to either just invest at an altruistic level or to to offset their carbon and, and trees become the immediate currency i think you know what we should recognize is there's a massive difference between trees and woodland Woodland to me is a is a system. It's a system that is dominated by trees, but actually is made up of a, a massive suite of species from you know from fungi through to insects, the, the micro life, if you like, that that forms the foundation for all life. You don't recreate that by just sticking in, you know, rows of single species, single age trees. So I think there's a there's a craze at the moment, call it a craze, a trend for tree planting. But but you're absolutely right. I think we need to be a little bit careful about not viewing trees as as some sort of silver bullet, um, because as we've discovered in back in the seventies, you know, you go up to parts of Caithness where huge areas of of trees were were planted over deep peat, and and we now realise that was a a really bad thing to do. I hope that ecologically speaking, we've learned some of those lessons. And and again, you know, rewilding has come to be associated with the return of woodland full stop you know woodland woodland riddled with wolves i've heard that term bandied about this is not just about woodland this is about the restoration of natural processes and in some cases that will manifest as woodland in some cases it will be um, either restored recreated or regenerated wetland salt marshes for example huge carbon store so yeah we absolutely have to think about okay whilst not being overly prescriptive about what nature in inverted commas looks like or who it serves we need to recognize that you know if we let nature run its course there would be a mosaic of dynamic habitats made up of a whole range of different degrees of woodland or, or not as the case may be um so yeah I, I think we we need to let nature guide us we need to let nature run its course to a certain extent and where we can let it have its head um but, but equally, you know, we shouldn't be tempted into thinking rewilding is all about 
woodland. It, it's not. It, woodland is a part of it in the same way that lynx is a part of it, in the same way that beavers are a part of it, in the same way that red squirrels are part of it. Um, but it is just one facet to the to the to the overall uh, the overall conversation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Peter, very early on, um, we we talked about the reintroduction of species. Um, on the continent, the European continent, obviously, um, various countries across Europe have been living side by side with with um, species um, that are just no longer present here in Scotland. Can you talk a little bit about how Europe views rewilding and, and how they manage conservation conflict? Yeah, I mean, I, I speak to colleagues in Europe who, who really scratch their heads when I start talking about some of these complex um issues and perceptions around rewilding they they just don't recognize it i'm i'm using a broad brush here but but generally speaking rewilding in in many parts of the continent is seen genuinely as an opportunity to reverse land abandonment you know you've had a trend not not dissimilar to scotland for different reasons but the, the manifestation is not dissimilar whereby you know a lot of people have moved to the cities because of better jobs better housing etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, and they've, they, you know, farmland has, has been abandoned across huge areas of Europe, and rewilding is seen as a, as a sort of a reinvention, a revitalization of those of those areas, and offering again not only opportunities for, for nature, but also for people. So I think you know that this this sort of negative perception around rewilding, and, and again I understand where it's come from. Um, I won't say it's uniquely Scottish or British, but it, but it is more prevalent here. That there's no doubt about that. Um, I mean, in terms of the the species that are starting, there's a big difference with with the continent because it is a big landmass. And in the case of, for example, Germany or the Netherlands, you know, animals like bears and wolves and lynx can slip across borders. They don't recognise those lines drawn on the map. And effectively integrate themselves into into those countries almost under the radar. We would have to pick them up and bring them here, and that that psychologically is a massive difference. And yet, bizarrely, you know, I I I, I see people who who have said to me, you know, over my dead body, are we having large carnivores back here? And I say to them, okay, but on that basis, I assume that you would support the eradication of, for example, wolves on the continent. And they say, well, no, of course not. I don't want to see them extinct. So we have this bizarre situation where we expect other countries to live with these animals, and yet we're not prepared to do so. And, and it's not that we can't, that there is food and habitat for, for example, lynx. You know, ecologically, they could live here tomorrow, make a good living. It is that we won't. And, and that that is the, the nub of it. Um and without getting overly political, you can, again, just see potentially a situation whereby if Scotland became independent and wanted to rejoin the EU, one of the conditions, there'd be many, of course, but one of the conditions is that species reintroductions would be a legislative requirement. So, you know, we, we're at this situation at the moment where we're seeing rewilding taking place on the continent almost by a sort of process of osmosis, um, and and for the large part we we applaud it, and and even when we don't applaud it, we acknowledge it as as being real, and yet we're unwilling to play our part in that process. And I think you know Scotland increasingly is is going to become isolated for not playing its part in what is and probably what has to be 
a global movement to restore nature and address climate breakdown. And, and, and another thing I hear very often is Scotland is different. Yeah, but Scotland's different. Why is it different? What, what, what unique properties exist here that don't exist in France, Spain, Italy, Germany, Holland? I don't understand the argument. I don't. I don't see the logic in it. So I think you know we we can we can look across the channel at Europe, and we can learn lessons about their successes. We can also learn lessons about things that haven't worked well. And there are absolutely instances, especially around large carnivores, where things haven't worked well. But I think we can learn lessons. Um, but we, to my mind, we have to get past this refusal to play our part in a, in a movement to recover nature globally. We can't pick and choose those animals that we like or are convenient or we profit from and, and just put the problem of living alongside those other animals onto somebody else. I, I just don't see that as part of a, of a progressive society. I think um, one of the really interesting things that's come out of lockdown, Peter, I, I don't know whether you, you feel the same, is um, it felt like every other week we were getting stories of species that hadn't been identified in a given location for, for many decades, potentially, you know, um, 50, 60 years, um, reappearing. Um, and it, it has made people more conscious of the, the human footprint um, on, on the earth. I mean, what, what's your thoughts on on that? Obviously, we don't want to to de-people um, the the farmed environment or, or the upland environment, but um, maybe if we just recognise our own impact and, and scale back a bit. Yeah, well, uh, you know, let, let, let's be clear that the elephant in the room is is, is the number of human beings on the planet. I, I, you know, I think I think we all recognise that's an uncomfortable recognition. It's an uncomfortable conversation. Um, but our impact has been and continues to be significant. Um, yeah, some people would call that natural evolution. We're just one species among many doing our best to survive and prosper. Um, yeah, these are challenging questions. But but you're right. You know, I, th I think lockdown has, has, has done a few things. It's, it, it's, it's probably reconnected, for want of a better expression, a lot of people with their local wildlife, you know, just going for walks along the along country lanes and even around housing estates. It's amazing when things are a little bit quieter and, and we're a little bit active, less active, and we see it at night. You know, you go out with a torch at night, you see a lot more wildlife than you do during the day. And of course, in this country in particular, um, you know, most species have learned to stay well away from people um, for, for very obvious reasons. Um, so yeah, we, we, we really do have a, a very skewed, and distorted and, and I would say pretty disappointing relationship with most species. And, and I think lockdown gave us just a little bit of a tiny glimpse into what could be possible very easily and very quickly if we, as you say, just, just sort of take our foot off the gas a little bit and, and just move away from this idea that you know, every single square inch of this country has to be somehow productive. And, and just going off a little bit of a tangent, forgive me, but, you know, in, 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 in much of the highlands, we, we, we still have this bizarre situation where land, much of the land is valued, financially valued, according to the number of animals that can be shot on it. In 2021, that that to me again doesn't doesn't reflect a progressive society. 
Um, and I think, you know, we it, 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 this, this business of rewilding is almost a reimagining of our fundamental relationship with and reliance on the natural world. Um, and I think, you know, you're right. Some of the, the we've, we've, people's sort of cages, as it were, have been rattled a little bit over lockdown as they've come out of their busy nine to fives and rushing around, as we all do, and, and taken stock. And, and actually, you know, I can tell you that that donations to to not necessarily Scotland, the big picture, but to some of the bigger, um, well, I'll call them rewilding organisations, have, have really rocketed. And, and I think that's a reflection of people's of people sort of reappraising, if you like, their relationship with nature and, and as I say, our, our dependence on it. So it's an interesting process. Peter, um, just a, a couple more questions here. But uh, if if I were to to ask you to look into your crystal ball and and tell me what Scotland looks like ten years down the line in terms of rewilding, what kind of country would we be looking at? Yeah. <laughs> That's a that's a really really tricky question. Um, all I can base this answer on is, is is the trends that I've seen in the last fifteen years, and those trends are are accelerated. Just, just before I answer that, if I can just go on a little bit of a tangent, just to because I think this is this is kind of indicative in many ways, symbolic. I, I, there's a landowner that, that I know down in the Angus Glens that I've, I've known for twenty five years, and and you know we've always got on fine on a, on a our values are different, our belief systems are different, but we've always got on fine. And he rang me up a couple of weeks ago and he says, right, he says, this this rewilding train, he says, I can see it coming down the track. I don't like the look of the train and I don't like the people on the train, but I can see that it's coming. And, and as a businessman, what he was really saying is that I need to look at the business model that I operate my estate on and think about what that needs to look like 10, 15, 20 years Hence, when I've when I've handed this on to my daughter, and I want to make sure that you know she's got an economically viable as well as a socially sustainable um, chunk of land to to manage. So I thought that was really interesting. I think you know the, the canny landowners, land managers are not necessarily willingly adopting the principles of rewilding, but at least seeing that that consumer trends and economics are starting to move land management in that direction. But going back to your question, what what would Scotland look like in ten years? I, I'm guessing there'll be there'll be uh, increasing amount of of woodland, native woodland. I'm guessing that there'll be um, pretty comprehensive nationwide peatland restoration. I think there's going to be a lot of work on restoring or renaturalizing rivers. We're already seeing that where you know rivers have been channelized and floodplains have been have been um, sort of modified. We're seeing a return to a much more free-flowing, meandering, natural river systems, which again has implications for things like salmon, but also has implications for flooding. I think we're probably going to see in the agricultural sector more so-called regenerative agriculture, uh, not necessarily organic, but but people adopting a more progressive, um, sort of locally focused approach to to food production. I think they're the trends that that I see. Uh, I think beavers will probably be across most of Scotland, but I equally I still see them being managed where they create problems either through translocation or ultimately culling. So I think we'll we, that that's the direction of travel. I think woodland is going to be more prevalent, peatland, river restoration, changes in farming, and um, yeah, some degree of of 
of increased species diversity and abundance. But before you ask the next question, I don't necessarily that I, I, that definitely won't include wolves in 10 years. It may include lynx. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that, they're, they're questions that are, that are still to be answered. I, uh, I won't hold you to your answer. No, nobody's going to check up with you in 10 years time. Um, but no, th thanks for that. That's great. Um, Peter, as my last question, I ask this to everybody who comes on the podcast. Um, what have you seen recently? What have you been involved in within the industry that you think that more people should be paying attention to? Is there any good practice or innovative idea that you want to, to draw, draw attention to? You mean in, in the farming sector? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, or, or across Scotland more generally. Cool, yeah. I mean, there is a lot going on. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, despite everything I've said earlier, which can be frustrating and bewildering, um, there's, there's a huge amount of exciting work going on. I think the thing that gets me out of bed every morning is the number of young people that are really engaged with this process. They're, they're really well read. They're across it. And, and so they should be, you know, we're talking about their future. I think specifically with farming, I, I, I come back to a, a local example, um, and, and it, I only know it because it is local, and, and many of your listeners will, will be familiar with Lynn and Sandra at Lynn Croft. Um, and what they do very cleverly, I think, on, on a relatively small piece of ground is, is combine food production with the principles of rewilding. Now, I genuinely don't know whether they call what they do rewilding. I'm, I'm not particularly bothered what they call it but they produce high quality premium local food and and you know at a business level demand for their product way exceeds supply it's a really successful business model but they farm with nature and whether they call it rewilding or not there's a lot of habitat restoration going on species recovery going along again alongside productive farming so i i would you know, look to Lynn Brett Croft, and they're not the only ones by any means. There are, there are an increasing number of people producing food in this way. And I would hope to see, you know, a more harmonious, less, less divisive line drawn between farming on the one hand and, and habitat restoration or rewilding on the other. And equally, I would like to see the line between nature and people dissolved so that we come up with solutions that can serve both. Um, I think that's 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 the holy grail. That's the silver bullet that that myself and others are working on on a, on a pretty pretty much everyday basis. Peter Cairns, um, on behalf of the Farm Advisory Service, it's been really good to to sit down and have a chat with you today. Um, do you want to to signpost to to your website at all? I mean, how do people engage with uh, with Scotland, the big picture? Yeah, well, like most people, we have a website, of course, scotlandbigpicture.com. We're on all the social media channels. Um, we put out a, a, a newsletter every month. You can sign up to that on our website. So, yeah, we'd be delighted if you join our journey. Um, and you can, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, which is, which is about sort of core values, I think, you know, it's important for people to understand who we are, what we stand for, and how we go about our business. So, again, if you go on our website, do a little bit of digging. You can find out about our core values. And uh, I hopefully that conveys to everybody that, you know, we are in no way anti-people, um, quite the opposite. So, uh, yeah, you can go on and, uh, and have a dig around there. That's great. Peter Cairns, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you.